Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everyone. So, Anya, do you have a favorite font? As long as it's sans serif, I think I'm generally happy, but I like Calabiri. I also like... Um, Oh, is it Garamond? Oh. Yeah, I like a little Garamond. Okay. Yeah, no, I okay. have some opinions. So the funny thing is, we all do, right? Everyone has their preferences. But what our guest today, John Lepp, is going to talk about is how those preferences don't necessarily matter when it comes to designing to raise more money. Hmm. That there's actually a lot of research around what works. And that it's not so, you know, when we're building our own brand and all that kind of stuff, sure, we can pick whatever we want. But when it comes to engaging with donors, design is really important. So key, like, especially with kerning is my big, like, I I really get hung up on kerning. So like kerning is like the spaces between letters, right? And when the kerning is off, like, so even when, when people do uh, right-left justification on oh, paragraphs, oh. right? So it's where, where you want the paragraph to fit in a particular space. So you hit the, that, that little button in, in Word or Google Docs that, like, looks as though it's, like, p- creating a perfect square. Yeah, yeah it But feels- all it does, yeah, all it does is create, like, really wide spacing in one line and then really, like, compact spacing in another. <laughs> like, that drives me up the I wall. know. I know. Uh, and even white space, that's a big one for me, mm-hmm. like having white space around stuff and not cluttering information. Um, there's so much. And yeah. with fundraising in particular, there's just a lot of resources out there to help us figure it out, right? You don't have to guess. Mm-hmm. You certainly should not be making these decisions based on what you or anyone in your organization likes or doesn't like, I'm yeah. sorry to say. Yeah. Um, and that's basically what John lives and breathes. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is a designer working exclusively with charities, most of them small and mid-size. He travels around the world talking about this. Um, and his work is fantastic. He's sort of one half of Agents of Good. We've had Jen on the podcast before, and he's going to break it all down for us. Yeah, I think um, to your point around, you know, it's not just about what one person likes in the organization. And this is not to say that you have to consult an expert before, <laughs> before you know, picking your font. But at least at the bare minimum, print it out. Like, look at it uh, at, you know, 36 point, look at it at nine point, make sure that like it's legible um, in a number of different scenarios. So like, look at it, you know, on print versus digital versus mobile, the key point around selecting sort of two to three fonts that'll be used in different contexts, Mm -hmm. right? So like one font that'll be used when you're, you know, titling or or using headers, one font that's going to be used when it's like, you know, just the paragraph text, another one that's like on posters, right? So it can be a little bit more dynamic. So at least like, to 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 listen to this podcast and understand like the concepts will you know when you get to the point where you're like okay well, we're going to pick our fonts you'll at least have that that um, expertise in the back of your head mm-hmm. and I think uh, when you go through branding exercise you know all of all of what John is talking about is is pre work to that right like if your organization is hiring some big 
or even small design firm or a designer who doesn't understand these principles of effective design, not just good looking design, but effective design, then you're kind of just wasting your money, right? You want to be aligned, you want your brand to also be effective. Um, And it's so much more than font as John is going to talk about, there's lots of things we cover. So I'm really excited to have this conversation, bookmark this podcast episode next time you go to create any piece of content for your fundraising uh, and definitely share it with anyone in your organization who gives you a hard time about those design decisions. John Lepp is a direct response marketing and design expert with over 20 years of experience working with charities across Canada and around the world to help them tell better stories and to inspire donors to give both online and offline. He he is a respected and coveted international speaker who has traveled the world helping fundraisers be more human and vulnerable to these other amazing humans we call donors. Please join me in welcoming my friend John to the podcast. John, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Cindy. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited for this conversation and to totally geek out with you because I know that you travel all over the world teaching people all the things we're going to talk about, as well as you practice it with many charities uh, locally and abroad. Uh, But my experience has been that this level of uh, education that's sort of in the big conferences and all of that, a lot of our audience doesn't have access to. And I'm really excited to share that access and share your knowledge and expertise with the small nonprofits of Canada. So uh, let me start by saying today we are going to be talking about direct appeal fundraising and specifically design, um, because design is a really important piece of what we're sending out. So can you start by talking about why design is important and and what impact it can have if done right versus not right? I can try. I'm. Thank you for that, Cindy. I appreciate it. I mean, it's it is funny because for a long time I am um I am a designer by trade. I'm also my background is also in writing. Um, but at Agents of Good here, we do um, we run a lot of direct response programs, and I know in the context of direct response or direct marketing, you know, design falls pretty low on the totem pole in terms of importance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as any direct marketer or, or direct response expert knows the number one most important thing in direct response is list. If you don't have a good list, then it doesn't matter about anything else. So I think as a, as a sector, we spend a lot of time talking about some of these other components of direct response and not a lot on design. So it's great for me to be able to share some of the like nerd knowledge that I have around design because I do obsess over design as much as I obsess over the right list or how to segment that list or what is the best offer uh, or the best, the best story or whatever else I want to think about and stuff. So it's great to share that, that nerd passion I, I have for design. And I think, you know, I spend a lot of time looking through other direct mail and direct response work, um, not only in Canada, but in the U S and the UK and Australia. And it seems to me that I think that there's been an emphasis placed on some of these other things, but not design. Like mm-hmm. if I look at it, it looks like design is very much an afterthought or it's put in the hands of people who actually don't understand the importance of it. Um, because yeah. even if you line up everything perfectly, I always, my joke always is, is that if I had a letter, the, 
the best letter in the world written by uh, God himself, or maybe even better in some circles, Tom Ahern. If I put, if I don't do my job properly on that outer envelope, then it's not going to matter what what's what is inside because no one's going to look at it, no one's going to see it and take any action. So mm. the role of design is super super important, and I literally. Um, it's not a joke. I do lie awake at night and in the mornings thinking about outer envelope OE artwork because I have to get it right. And if I get it wrong, wrong, then I've, I've let down a lot of people. So it's something I do obsess over quite a lot, obviously. I know work is such an important piece of the package, but I also want you to clarify because we're not just talking about design. Like does it fit within our brand design uh, standards and all of that? We're talking about design that works, that actually is effective. And it doesn't always mean that it's the most beautiful thing, or it doesn't always fit in with our design aesthetics. So can you talk about um, what the difference is between something that just looks beautiful and something that is effective? Yeah, that, you took the words out of my mouth because, I mean, a lot of people think design is just how something looks. And as you've put it so eloquently, it's really about how something works, not how it looks. And I think the really good designers actually understand that. I I understand and I train other designers that the more, especially in the context of direct response, the more we can remove our fingerprints from a piece of work, it tends to be more effective. Mm. Um, I have to check my own subjective needs and desires as a graphic designer uh, at the door. And I have to ask myself, is this going to help the piece get a better response, get a better result, or is it not? Or is it not going to make any difference at all? And if the answer is it's not, or it's not going to make a difference, then I don't do it. And again, that's something I look at when I see a lot of these, a lot of different work that's out there is you can see designers. I can always tell a designer who's either a newer designer or, um, or not a very good designer because you can see they're just kind of throwing lots of things at the wall and there's lots of extra design elements that just don't need to be there. They're actually decreasing um, the total comprehension of what it is you're asking the donor to do, the action you're asking them to take. And so I'm always teaching the more we can remove these things. I'm going first. The less is more. Definitely in this scenario, less, less is more. And um, But we do need to think about how does a donor, back to that kind of like how does it work, you have to, as a designer, you have to understand how a design, how a donor moves through a pack, what their experience is in that little moment, and you make sure that every piece of that experience is the best it possibly can can be. And so I'm always thinking about how I want a donor to move through the pack. What do I want them to look at first? How do I? What do I want them to see? Uh, first and last and what should it say to get them to do what I want them to do. I want to walk through that whole process. But before we do, I also think there's one other myth that we think of when we think about design uh, that I think we should dispel before we go into that conversation, because I think it's a lot, a block for a lot of people listening, which is we often associate design with expensive and I want to preface this conversation, and we will go into into those elements in that donor experience. But what you're saying and what we're going to talk about is not necessarily, you know, things that we would typically think of as designy, expensive, glossy, and all that. So can you talk a little bit about that misconception? Um, I can try. I mean, certainly a large part of the, the stuff that we do with our our clients is. I want my clients actually producing all the other stuff in house. Um, like I help them in some of that experience in terms of maybe setting some stuff up in word or that sort of thing, because then 
we always talk about these like little moments, these little touches, things like I'm, I'm left-handed. So whenever I write anything, I smear ink all over the place <laughs> and computers don't smear ink. It's yeah. like stamps. Computers don't put stamps on ankles, but humans do. And this, these little imperfections in our work, we like to get our clients to paperclip photographs on the top of letters and do all these things that computers and, and machines can't do because it sends all these little signals to donors that there's humans involved in the creation of this piece. And so um, I think the, you know, I, I have been doing this a long time and certainly I think there's a value to that um, that may be different for everybody, but I don't think that what I'm trying to do design that's expensive because I know that the expensive design doesn't make for more effective design. Mm-hmm. The more I'm actually not my, my hand or my computers not involved in the creation of something, I know the better it's going to be. So I'm always trying to think what are some imperfections we can build into these things um, like we'll do a gratitude report that basically looks like people photocopied this page and taped this image here and, and stapled this to that and, you know, pencil crayon this and whatever and hand wrote that. And it creates a more human piece at the end of the day. It's very designed. It's old, like, it's very, very designed, but I'd be hard pressed for a person to look at it and go, this is very designed. Do you know yeah. what I mean? This, yeah. The design is the fact that it's not designed as well. And it doesn't have to cost you a fortune. And so many people are afraid of donors opening things and and getting offended that they're spending money. Uh, And that's not, we're not talking about the high gloss. We're talking, again, going back to the effective. You can do it on the budget. You can do it uh, with a big budget. But either way, it has to feel personal and authentic and meaningful, not glossy and professional. Even if it's a professional does it, it doesn't feel that like, um, ex, like someone external to the organization is involved. I always suggest, you know, th- and this is a little subjective, <laughs> but to run it through an, like what's appropriate. If I'm mailing a donor who tends to give me $20 year over year, sending them a big nine by 12 glossy envelope with a eight page report, a 16 page letter, six inserts, a BRE, a reply form that is not appropriate. Yeah. Nowhere in anyone's world does that make any sense at all. And but there are moments where again, if I am mailing certain kinds of donors, that would be completely appropriate. And so you need to think about even the context of say color. These days everyone prints everything digitally. It's not like the old do it days where we used to run everything on press, mm-hmm. two color press or four color press. These days almost everything in small quantities is done digitally. So doing four color or full color isn't really more expensive than anything else. But again, there are times where you don't need a four-color image. A two-color image or a black-and-white image is just as effective because it's a really good image. So I think you have to kind of think about that perception of, I'm a donor holding this in my hands, and what's the perception of me looking at this thing that I'm holding? And is it appropriate to who I'm talking to? And again, those are some subjective questions you have to ask yourself. But as designer, I always think, what's the, what's the simplest way for me to deliver something that's the most appropriate for this audience? Um, and I'm not looking to spend even with gratitude reports. What's the bare minimum of pages? Do I need to get them the most important content across and how can I do that as simply as possible? So let's talk about that donor experience and their journey in opening, receiving and opening a piece of mail. Let's start from the top. What should we be thinking about? 
Well, I always think about, you know, I, I always refer to my mother-in-law in presentations um, here in Canada. Uh, my mother-in-law is your donor. She's um, between 65 and 95. I'll tell you how old she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's exactly who you should be thinking of when you're producing direct mail um, or direct res- or direct response piece because that's your audience. And she gets here in Canada, she'll get between 30 to 40 appeals in a week. Wow. Well, in that's I mean, we have eighty six thousand charities here in Canada. If you're in the U.S., that has one point five, one point six million charities. If you're that donor in the U.S., she's getting between forty and fifty appeals in one day. In that context, I have to think about that very moment that she wanders to her mailbox, and from that moment, I have to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to make sure that she's going to take a moment to look at the thing I'm, I've sent her. So the majority of the stuff that she gets are in white number 10 envelopes, which is like the most standard envelope you can purchase. It is definitely the cheapest. Um, but when you consider that 90% of the stuff she's holding, the 40 pieces she's holding in her hands at that moment looks like that, you're not rising above. So how do we rise above? Yeah, well, there's some good questions. So the, I always think about what are some things that maybe I can do to make sure that I'm standing at, well, almost everything I do is in a, like a nine by six envelope. Um, which is obviously bigger. It doesn't really cost more from a postage point of view compared to the number 10 stuff. So at least visually of one or two or three pieces that is sticking above the rest of everything else. Mm-hmm. You might get a couple of nine by 12s, but usually they contain, they're usually acquisition packs and that's a whole other conversation. The other thing I want to make sure is the envelope, the art form of the envelope is what has to be on that. So I've got our attention. She's pulled out the two or three bigger envelopes and she's looking at those. Now, what do I need to do? to make sure she doesn't throw mine aside. And there's a whole art form behind that, the idea of writing good taglines or what kind of visuals are great on other envelopes. And again, this is something I see, you know, done wrong over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an art form to a really good tagline saying, uh, Josie's story's inside. Please open now. Is <laughs> not a good tagline. No. That doesn't that doesn't ask her any questions. That's not provocative. Um, she definitely knows it's not about her. I'm like, um, who's Josie? I don't care. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing in her. I know from a testing point of view, tactically, I know that in testing a nine by six envelope with a logo only and a return address will do better than almost anything else. Hmm. So that's my starting point. I always start there. And because I'm not telling her anything, hopefully that she, hopefully she likes my charity. So she's not like, I don't know what this is, but I like these people. And I know last time I opened something, it was really good. So I'm going to open it again. It made me feel good. So I'm going to open it again. Mm-hmm. That's where our experience becomes, comes into play a little bit. I'm not telling her anything. It could be anything. Um, but hopefully if she has good feelings, that's why some people can, te- you can test your logo. Your mm-hmm. logo may be hurting you <laughs> in the context <laughs> of direct response. And it, it has happened. If you're not very good at treating your donors well, your logo could be hurting your response rates just by being on your envelope. So once, hopefully, if she likes me and she's opened my envelope, now I, now my job becomes how can I get her to take the action I need her to take? I've, I've been seen. I've seen, made sure the pack's been seen. Now I have to make sure that it's understood and that she takes the action I want. And, you know, even in terms of what shows through the window, if you're using a window envelope, we've tested, does it matter if the reply form shows through the outer envelope or the letter shows through. In other words, the first thing that she pulls out of that pack now, what does she f- see first? Yeah. And does it uh, matter? It does. In testing, okay. we've, seen, we've seen that the a letter, the first thing that she pulled out should be the letter ideally. Mm-hmm. If it's the coupon and for financial reasons, it may, if you're using a standard pack, 
it may be the reply form, but I make sure her name, it's her form. It's all over the place. It's not a, it's not a form for the organization. It's a reply form for her. Mm-hmm. So I make sure her name is all over it all nice and big, but in testing, ideally the letter will show through and most donors will look at their name and address to make sure that's spelled right. And everything's right there. They will quickly scan down, flip it over and look at who's it, who it's from and then read the PS. And some donors based on those three things will make a decision to give or not. I want to talk about this a little bit more yeah. because these are, there's so many, um, there's a little nuances in here all <laughs> over the place. I know. Well, I, I, I used to work at a business school and when we were doing direct appeal, I had colleagues who said, well, PSs are from typewriter days. And so we shouldn't have them anymore, especially because we are a business school. And of course, um, the people we were working with on direct appeal said, no, you need the PS. Uh, and certainly that's been my experience. What goes into a good postscript? The best PS is, is plain and simple. It repeats your offer and why I need to ta- take auction now. Yeah, excellent. Why, why me and why now is, is, and this is, you know, I'm not making this stuff up. There's a, there's a book called the handbook of direct mail. And it's written by a, uh, a young man who's not so young. I mean, named Siegfried Vogel. And this was written back in the, I think the eighties, maybe early, early eighties, originally in German. And Dr. Vogel had done a bunch of research on eye scans and how people actually uh, move through pieces like letters and, so this research is in that book. If you can track it down, it's worth about uh, $1,700 now Canadian on Amazon, but you can have mine for a little bit less than that if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing is, I mean, you, that's your, you know, and I said organizations, if you don't have a PS, you're dead in the water for some donors. You've lost your, you've lost it. If you don't have a PS that doesn't say what the offer is or what you're asking for, forget it. You may have some who go back to the beginning and then skim and the skimmers will go through and basically look at anything that's bolded and underlined or whatever. And I always, from a design point of view, I make sure anything I bold or underline or write is either referring to the donor or what I need them to do. So I'm, so the donor is seeing me, I'm awesome. Me, me, me. This is what they're asking me for. Me, me, I'm amazing. Here's what they're asking me for. If I'm just skimming and then I, then I may take some action or I may not take some action. But again, some donors, again, make a decision at that moment to put the thing down or to fill out the reply form. So again, this is a small design thing. I see designers who don't know what they're doing are really good at putting emphasis on all the wrong things. Yeah. Or they make the letter have photographs all over it and down the column run, you know, the the list of the board of directors in nice big type and um, all these, all these things that are distracting from what we want the person to actually do, which is take Mm -hmm. action. Uh, On that note, Mm -hmm. the board of directors list made me think of typical letterhead. What should we be printing this on? I always say, obviously, eight and a half by 11 is great. Um, You want your letter to look like a personal letter from Cindy to John. And the more it looks like that. So if you can get someone to hand sign it, please do. If they can write a little, you know, hey, John, thanks so much for your support through the years. It means a lot alongside the signature. That's amazing. Uh, you know, it should look like a personal um, letter. Anything you do that starts to take away from that, doing all left justified types. Some people are really against indents. And they ha- obviously have zero idea of the importance of indents. There's a visual importance to having indented paragraphs. It gives them a moment for your donor's eyes to rest as they move through your letter. And again, 
people just go, I don't like indents, so we're not going to do them. Well, in my world, I can't make decisions like that. Uh, every decision I make, someone said, I had a client one time say, you chose this font. Did you choose it for a reason? I said, yeah, I have 21, 22 years of reasons why I chose this font for this thing. I don't know what you, what you're thinking, but I know what I'm thinking. They're you know? probably thinking, I don't like it or it's not. I don't like font. it. That's exactly <laughs> their thing. It's like, this doesn't feel right for me. And I'm like, I don't really much care because this isn't yeah. for you. Yeah. You know, oh. so you kind of have to put that stuff aside. Let's talk about fonts since we brought it up. What <laughs> I think you're framing this as this is not for us. This is not what we like. This is what is for our donors, what's going to make them feel good and what's going to cause them to take action and give in a way that feels great. And part of that is some simple accessibility issues like font and font size. Uh, what should we be doing? Um, this has been a hot topic, it seems like, for the last couple of weeks. Um, I've spent a lot of time talking about curry or typeface, which excites me to, to ends I can't even begin to explain. To me, I always, I always say to other designers and to fundraisers, the most beautiful font in the world to me is designer's courier. And the reason it's courier, or I would also accept prestige because prestige is another font. The reason those two fonts to me are the most beautiful font in the world is because usually in testing, I find it beats anything else. If I run a letter head-to-head with another letter, one set in something in this one versus versus courier, I find courier does better. Why is that? Well, there's something as a designer, I'm always trying to think of things I can do that create reactions in donors' brains, not consciously always, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. When your donor sees courier on a page, there's a couple things happening there. One, somewhere in their brain is thinking about a time that's past. Mm. A time where, you know, we used to use typewriters and these sorts of things. And the other thing that's happening, and there's warm feelings there. Do you know what I mean? Like this nostalgia is an incredible, powerful tool in the context of storytelling and in direct response. And the other thing that's happening is somewhere off in their brain, even if it's for the briefest of moment, they are hearing that ticket, 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 ding. And again, it's a really small reaction. These two things have zero to do with what you're asking them for and what you need them to do. But you're creating an atmosphere of positivity, of warm feelings, of a time that's passed. There are so many good things associated with those things. And I'm not trying to, again, do it consciously. I'm not trying to go, hey, that looks like a typewriter. I don't want that to happen. But that's sort of what happens with this kind of typeface. Now, that being said, um, when I was a younger person, um, this may be about 10 years ago, uh, CNIB here in Canada, that's the Canadian National Institute for the Blind and Visually Impaired, mm-hmm. they had done a study with um, a, a design school in Toronto, and they were doing a typography study. Their findings basically found out that very large sans serif, so sans serif type is like those the typeface without any like the little doohickeys or little like, you know, wingdings off the edge or little nuances. It's like straight up type Helvetica, that sort of thing. Yeah. They found that large type sans serif, specifically Verdana, had a larger um, readability score and greater um, comprehension. And this kind of flew in the face of everything we'd been doing up until that point. Everyone, everything I'd learned growing up was you use Times New Roman, which was a serif type, yeah. um, you know, 10, 12 point for everything. And to this day, CNIB still uses 16 point Verdana on every single appeal that they send out. Wow. But they've tested it and I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to take that away from them. I yeah. traditionally in print 
Serif is still a safer bet than using sans serif because it still has better readability in a print format. And I know I don't do anything smaller than 14 point these days. Mm-hmm. So someone said, well, that looks a bit like 14. If you take your letter and set it in 14 point or 16 point, it looks ridiculous. <laughs> like it looks really stupid, almost like it's a mistake. And, you know, the funny thing about that kind of comment is the fact that, you know, we live in a world that really reminds seniors that they're seniors. We do everything can remind them that they're old and not what they once were. And doing a small thing that's, again, this is a very semi-conscious little tiny design thing, sending a letter that a donor pulls out and instantly they can read without pulling glasses aside or down their nose or holding away from their fate or anything like that. It's a small, powerful moment we're getting them where we're not reminding them that they're old. The power in that is you cannot for one moment dismiss. And again, this is stuff that people just kind of go, I don't like 16 point, it looks stupid. And you, you cannot make these decisions. You cannot make the decisions unless you know that you've tested it and you have scientific proof like I do <laughs> to, to back the, up your decision-making. And this stuff is just sort of like people just kind of make their random assumption. I don't like that color that I would never do like that. I wouldn't design it like that. This is not what I had in mind. I don't care about any of those things. Yeah. There's no room for that kind of thinking in in design work for, for charities. And again, it goes back to what you said about someone opening it and it feels like it's for you and you understand them and they're much more likely to support the organization if they feel seen and heard and um, appreciated. A thousand percent. Yeah, absolutely. Without opening up a can of worms, you know, there's every now and then we'll see a little headline like, oh, direct appeal is dead or direct response is dead. And of course the numbers don't support that. Um, But we know that a lot of these practices or a lot of these design elements are tested and proven with that older audience. Do you see anything coming down the pipelines with a younger audience and how they're giving? No, I think what has changed, though, is, um, you know, originally it was the, the civics. You know, when I first started out, you were talking to people who were older than the boomers, the parents of the boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there were some different rules there. They were very direct response um, inclined, direct mail inclined. They gave a lot through direct mail. And certainly as we moved into the sort of like older section of the boomer generation, you know, their their um, habits are different. They are, they are reading your stories. Um, they're consuming the... the the things that you are doing and what they are needed for on many different channels. So mm-hmm. they are on your Facebook page. They are, um, they may be looking at Twitter, not Twitter so much, but they do have an inclination to get your DM piece and go onto your website and to give instead of maybe checking the box in the reply form. And we know these things to be true. And I think you have to, like when we do a piece, we just do some simple integration. If I do something, use an image, for example, on an insert in a DM piece, I'll make sure that on the web page of the organization, that image is there too. So if I've put down that outer envelope and I go over to my computer to go online to give, which donors are doing, then they're seeing that continuity. They're seeing this, this they understand that's the same thing. They're not like, well, what's this page? This looks completely different than everything I just saw yeah. a second ago in this DMP. So these even the same things. So these are really simple things. Same with Facebook. It's really simple to integrate some of these things usually with a bit of visualness repeating the offer but allows your donor to to really consume the story in the channel that they want to Mm -hmm. consume the story i mean certainly in the context of legacy fundraising this is becoming very important to understand where donors are actually plugging into you and where they're um where they're sort of interacting with your stories and what you're asking them for 
Um, it's different than it was even 10 years ago. But direct mail in terms of fundraising, we always ask our clients, don't, do not measure the bottom line of each channel in isolation. Mm-hmm. You cannot because we don't live in a, in a single channel world anymore. And your donors certainly don't. And if you think that you are, you're wrong. So you see marketing comms departments running all the online stuff and you see the, the fundraisers who are tucked away in the, the back storage room, you know, looking at paper and flipping through envelopes. You can't do that anymore because you have to measure the bottom line of all the channels. Just because you do have donors given to you online, you can't discount the importance of direct mail because, because of that behavior. Exactly. And I've seen people go, well, our, our newsletter, printed newsletter doesn't raise any money. So we're just going to deep six and do an e-version. Well, you better really make sure you know what you're doing. I've seen organizations lose a ton of money, again, by making just their own subjective opinions yeah. without any research or testing to find out if, if that's the case. And that stuff just drives me insane. It's, it's really irresponsible. Yeah. I've seen that with organizations where they track, like often with databases or even just generally, we look at the broader appeal and say, okay, we sent out an appeal. It went through mail and email and social media at this time. And how did this perform? But often when we come into organizations, they will say, well, you raised this much online and we raised this much in the mail. And it's all in response to the same package, uh, but they're not tracking the package or tracking the response mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't give you the picture, as you just said. So I think that that's a really important, I mean, I could go on a, a diatribe around your database and your systems to help you analyze those things. But definitely, because someone's taking action online, it doesn't mean that the offline pieces didn't trigger that action. Absolutely not. One of the things we see with organizations, a lot of small organizations, is the ask in a newsletter. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, which has a lot of value, we know that newsletters are great at raising money, but sometimes they think that that's enough and that that can substitute a more traditional, straightforward direct response piece. Can you talk a little bit about, is that true? And uh, if not, how often we should be communicating with our donor, asking our donors for support through direct response? I, you know, I think we have to remind ourselves that we are having emotional conversations with donors all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, the traditional agency way, way of doing things, uh, Steve Thomas and I had a little bit of scuffle about this very thing not so long ago, where the traditional agency approach is we're going to do an annual appeal to our work. So renewal one goes out and just asks to renew your support. Renewal two, a reminder goes out and stuff. And then we'll drop in a special, which is around a singular topic. Well, the work that we do is is more focused on that special approach because it's like real life. I don't say, hey, Cindy, we've been, we were, been friends all through last year. Uh, let's go for coffee and we can renew our friendship. Like that's not how real world life works. When you really, and I, I do that all the time. Yeah, totally, right? <laughs> When we get together, we have, I'm taking the long, uh, long approach to the answer. So please bear with me. <laughs> no, of course. Um, <laughs> we do everything from a special appeal. If we have a conversation sitting you and I real life, there are different things that are going on in our lives that you may need me for and I need you for. In other words, they are always special conversations. It's not just about renewing some sort of relationship. And so in the context of that, in that emotional conversation you have with your donor, sometimes you're just asking your donor for help. Sometimes you're just reaching out to say, hey, we asked you the other day and, and you did this and thank you so much. 
And sometimes you're saying, hey, we asked you the other day, thank you so much. Here's what we did with your money. So you're taking an opportunity to report back on what you actually did with what the donation, what the donation, what it was. And the, the cool thing about newsletters is they can actually do all three at the same time. You can ask for more support. You can also thank and, uh, and acknowledge prior support. And it's also an opportunity to report back on the things that you were able to do because the donor took the moment to support you in those things. The very, very best donor newsletters, the very best Tom Hearn has a great book about donor newsletters, all based on testing is a four page, um, 11 by 17, um, newsletter with a cover letter, a reply form, a BRE, and a 9 by 6 envelope. And the newsletter is all around telling stories of, of things that are still ongoing, things the donor made possible, uh, things we still need help with, thank you for this, uh, talking about this donor who left a legacy gift. Um, those are the best newsletters. They can do by themselves, they can raise far more money than any one-off appeal. Mm-hmm. Now, Saying that doesn't mean you can deep six all your single appeals because they have a slightly different function. There are things that you need through the year. Uh, I had a call with a client this morning who wants to do a year-end appeal. And I said, at the end of the day, you still have to, what are you asking the donor for? There should be always, if you're an organization, there's always something that you need help with. And what's that thing you need help with? And a a one-off simple appeal can express just with a game type and a lot of the things, that singular need of this is something we're trying to do, this is something to accomplish, something we're raising money for. Can you help us with this thing? Mm-hmm. And the thanking component and reporting back can also happen separately. But a newsletter can do all three of those things. And so even the smallest organizations, ideally, you know, ideally we like to see at least two newsletters, one in the spring, one in the fall, um, with at least two to four appeals in the course of a year. Um, that would be a, a, the bare minimum, you know, I know Jeff Brooks tested it in the U S I think he found the breaking point was 23 appeals two, <laughs> two, three, 23 appeals. If they, as soon as they did 24 appeals, they started to see a decrease in response rates, but up to 23, they were okay. So some people think, wow, four, four DM appeals and two newsletters seems like a lot. And if you're a one person shop, that is not sustainable. You cannot. Yeah execute that much stuff and i know that so you have to find what's right for you but i think if you're if you're a half decent size medium shop or smaller shop and you've got some some help that that's kind of what you're aiming for because otherwise you're just not in your donor's hands enough to be seen you know if you only come out once a year that's really in the same time of year that everybody else is coming out <laughs> it becomes very difficult to break through all of that clutter especially when your donor just doesn't remember hearing from you for you know forever really yeah yeah Oh my goodness. I feel like we could talk forever. Um, because yeah. <laughs> there's so much I want to say, uh, and want you to say one of the things I've also seen organizations do is, you know, going back to that example of the 23 appeals or 23 touch points is they'll get feedback from one or two people, or they'll get like a small number of unsubscribes when they send out an email and they think, Oh, <gasps> I'm asking too much or this didn't work or one person complained about the 14 font size and they said they didn't like it. And so they stop doing it. Can you talk a little bit just to wrap things up around testing and how to test as a small organization? Because Mm. we can't be so reactive to small pieces of feedback. And so how do we actually understand that what people say isn't always how they act and that we need to test how they act. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's it right there. It comes down to that educational component. I think even as a, even a firm like mine, you know, we work with lots of smaller and medium-sized organizations. It just doesn't make any sense for these organizations to be doing testing all the time. They don't have the numbers to do a proper test or they want to test things that really won't really give them any valuable data really. And so, you know, like I look to a lot of the stuff that I've learned through the years, I look to um, some of my colleagues at um, Blue Frog in the UK and Mark Phillips. I look to uh, Jonathan Grapsis in Australia. Um, I look to people um, like Jeff Brooks in the U S these are people who have monster firms who've worked with monster agencies and have tested the crap out of everything. And whenever I find myself in a scenario of this is something I'd like to test, do you want to do? I pick up the phone or I ask them. Um, and if I don't really know, and, and I've created an atmosphere where I can do that from a small organization point of view, there are lots of people out there who are sharing the things Jono shares and stuff. Mark shares stuff, Jeff shares stuff online all the time. And I really implore my colleagues and friends at charities. I know that we're busy. I know you've got your head down. You need to get your work done. I understand that. But there needs to be a certain level of seeking out a little a little better idea of some of this stuff because you just can't do it on your own. It's, it's just too difficult. Um, and there's lots of people there who, can, who are happy to share with you. You just need to ask them and they'll, they'll tell you what they've learned and what they, they have learned by doing some of these things. Um, and I think, you know, in the context of donors who are, um, you do something that a donor doesn't like, or someone on the board says they didn't like, um, I know if I send an email, if I send an email about my blog post and I get four unsubscribes, I'm actually happier because what I'm actually left with is stronger than what I started out with. Mm -hmm. So when people unsubscribe, that's to me is a victory. Um, not a, not a failure. I want to see that because it, it, I'm left with something more valuable in the context of a donor calling because they got a piece in the mail that they were something they were unhappy with. Um, and we've heard that in context like of a legacy fundraising or, or different kinds of fundraising. The donors are like, I don't like this. And I don't like you talking to me about these sorts of things. We have a beautiful, wonderful life that we get to have amazing emotional conversations mm-hmm. with human beings called donors. And think of the opportunity of someone calling you and complaining about something. You need to look at that as an opportunity to, first of all, to let them be heard, for you to talk to them about their values as a human being, to explain to them that they are one person of a very, you know, good-sized group, army, collection, whatever you want to call it, community of people who are, who are fighting for something that you all believe in and how amazing that is that, that we're surrounded by people like this in this world. And that, you know, that we do sometimes explain that we know that you may personally not like this, but we also know that we're helping our organization and more important, the constituents of this organization um, by doing things like this. And I think we would all agree at the end of the day that that's more important than our subjective feelings about whether we like this typeface or whether we like this sort of approach. But if people are doing their work with great consideration and great thoughtfulness and certainly immense amounts of love I don't know. I think we can't do much more than that. And I think any donor, human or otherwise, should hopefully understand that on a certain level. There's no better way to end this conversation than what you just said. I feel like that was a mic drop moment. So I will just say, John, thank thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate that all of your advice, A, that is not just advice, it's research, but that it's very implementable. I hope that, and I 
I hope that our listeners will be able to take action immediately on some of these ideas, if, if not all of them, uh, because you know they're all very doable. And it's you know you, we can do our best to share this information. And now, dear listeners, it's on you to take action. So. John, thanks again for sharing. Where can our listeners uh, find more information about you? Um, we have um, a, a little blog we run over at agentsofgood.org, which you can interact with there. Or I'm on Twitter uh, having real-life conversations, just like 2009. Uh, <laughs> on Twitter, you can find me there at John Lepp. I'm always happy to talk to people about um, things they're they're scratching their head about or whatever. So yeah, reach out. I always like chatting to people and hear what uh, people are trying out there. Excellent. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.